Anatomy of an Athlete events are supporting our current exhibition. I'm also pleased to say the current exhibition, Anatomy of an Athlete, has actually been extended to 21st of December. So you, if you weren't able to see it with the early viewing tonight, you will still be able to catch it up until we close for Christmas. Um, first of all, I'll just tell you how we're setting the evening out tonight. I'll introduce uh, my three speakers. Uh, they will then each stand up and give a short presentation about themselves and their work. And then as chair, I will ask them a couple of questions, which hopefully they'll all be able to have a go at answering. And then I'm going to turn it over to you, the audience. Uh, when we do start the audience questions, we will be... I've got two members of staff who are going to have roving mics, and we are recording the, the words tonight, sadly not the images, but we will be recording everything everyone says. So we'd appreciate it if we could record your words as well. So please do wait until the microphone gets, it, gets to you. We will endeavour to make sure everyone's questions get answered. Um, so um, my, first, uh, my first speaker for the evening, uh, just to my left, is Professor Sanjay Sharma. He's the Professor of Inherited Cardiac Diseases and Sports Cardiology, Consultant Cardiologist at St. George's Healthcare NH Trust, and he's based in the Inherited Cardiac Diseases, the CRY Inherited Cardiac Diseases and Sports Cardiology Clinic. He was cardiologist for the 2012 Olympics, and his interests include cardiovascular ad adaptation in athletes, sudden cardiac death in the young, and heart muscle disease. Um, in the middle, uh, we have Professor Alison McGregor, Professor of Musculoskeletal Biodynamics at the Department of Surgery and Cancer of Imperial College London, and she manages the Human Performance Group. Research focuses on the musculoskeletal system with respect to the mecha mechanisms of injury and the effects of injury on function and injury management. She's worked closely with the Team GB rowers for the last two Olympics, and she was also lucky enough to actually carry the Olympic torch during its South Kensington leg, so she's had more connection with the Olympics than most of us. And my final speaker at the far end is Professor Nicola Mafuli. And he's a professor of trauma and orthopaedics and consultant orthopaedic surgeon, as well as being center lead of the Barts and the London Center of Sports and Exercise Medicine. He was selected by the London Organizing Committee to lead the orthopaedic sports foot and ankle surgery service at the 2012 Olympics and the Paralympic Games. So I'm sure if you've been following things, you'll have a lot to ask. And so that's our three speakers for the evening. I'd now like to turn it over to the first of our speakers, uh, Professor Sanjay Sharma. Well, thank you everyone for taking the time to come out here today. I'm impressed with the uh, number of people that are here. Um, as Hayley said, I, I'm a professor of cardiology and my in one of my interests is uh, sports cardiology. And she's already introduced all the things I do and the fact that I did look after the hearts of the GB Olympians uh, this year. I'd like to really talk to you before I start uh, talking about cardiac disease about the benefits of exercise. I think everyone in this room would uh, agree that uh, the benefits of exercise on the heart and the blood supply of the body are well established. We know that people that exercise regularly have a lower blood pressure, have a better cholesterol profile, they're less likely to be obese and have associated diabetes mellitus. And through control of these risk factors for coronary artery disease, most people that exercise regularly live an average of seven years longer than those people who don't exercise at all. 
Apart from these benefits, exercise improves physical and mental conditioning. It's thought to reduce the incidence of certain cancers and may retard the onset of dementia. So it's not surprising that young athletes are considered to, rep to epitomize the healthiest segment of our society. These young individuals are capable of extraordinary physical skills and are a source of motivation and aspiration for our young. And this is just, uh, for those of you that have got the Olympic blues, just a small clip to remind you of what it was all about. I still get uh, goosebumps just looking at all of this. Uh, but um, every now and then, a young and apparently healthy individual dies suddenly whilst uh, competing. I'd like to take you back to 2003 in France when Cameroon played Colombia in the Federations Cup. And what you see here is a, a young man that's gone down and is breathing his last. Um, I won't make this too disturbing for you, but uh, the other thing that I want you all to appreciate is that there's a lot of activity going on around this young man, and at this time, they're trying to just make sure that he's not swallowing his tongue. And if you continue to monitor, you'll see what happens close up. So collapse, no collision, eyes roll back, no tone at all. That should not happen to an athlete. I'll just freeze it there because it doesn't look very good after that. But this chap didn't receive any cardiopulmonary resuscitation for 12 minutes. Now, I'm not trying to be critical of the attendees there, but this just underscores the fact that no one can believe that a young person could possibly uh, experience a sudden cardiac death, especially a young individual that's played in the Premier League. But these things do happen. I'm pleased to say that they're rare. But when they do occur, they touch the lives of the nation in general. They are often um, uh, they, they, they often headline, and headlines often pertain to the youth of the individual, the counterintuitive nature of the event, and the potential number of life years lost. Us in the UK, we've been a bit unfortunate. This young man was playing at White Hart Lane uh, at, for Bolton against Tottenham. One minute he was having a game of his life. And shortly afterwards, uh, you could see uh, absolute <coughs> catastrophe on, uh, on the pitch. Fortunately, he survived. But then, of course, there was the death of Claire Squires at the London Marathon this year. And so emotive 
was the event that it generated um, or raised, shall I say, the sum of over a million pounds for the Samaritans. So these deaths do occur in athletes. Here are some facts. The incidence of sudden death, though, is rare. It's about one in 50,000. But the important thing to take home is that 40% of these occur in adolescent individuals, those aged under 18 years old. They're much more common in males than females with a 9 to 1 ratio. 90% occur during or immediately after exertion. And sadly, sudden death is the first presentation. The young individual doesn't usually experience warning symptoms. The vast majority are due to structural or electrical disorders that run in families. So there's usually a family history of a young sudden death or a young individual that may be affected. And people who harbor these disorders are five times more likely to die if they exercise than if they led a sedentary life. And that's because if we think about the trigger for sudden death, whether it's an abnormal heart muscle or a blood supply, and then we think about the stresses of exercise, i.e. dehydration, surges of adrenaline, electrolyte disturbances, or acid-base disturbances, you can see how the heart could go into a very bizarre rhythm that could culminate in a fatality. There are methods of actually diagnosing these things in life, and we have various medical strategies that can actually minimize the risk of sudden death. What you see here is a young man having an ECG, which is a simple electrical, electrical tracing of the heart that is capable of picking up electrical disorders and may raise suspicion of structural abnormalities of the heart. This, this uh, test takes about four or five minutes to perform and about two minutes to interpret. And some of you may ask, well, does this actually pick things up and does it save lives? Now, this is the only graph I'm going to show you, you'll be pleased to, uh, you'll be pleased to know. But this is the Italian experience. Italy is the only country in Europe where testing of young athletes is mandated. These young individuals are tested every year uh, with physical examination, health questionnaire, and a 12-lead ECG. If they're diagnosed with a serious condition, they're, often, they're usually disqualified from sport or treated if they're actually treatable. And what you see here is the red line, which, which basically uh, relates to death rates in athletes, and the yellow line, that's death rates in non-athletes. And as you would expect from what I've told you, death rates in athletes are higher at the beginning than in non-athletes. And this is before they started screening. They started screening at this point. And over 25 years that they've been screening, you'll see that the death rate has slowly come down in athletes, that it's now below that of non-athletes. In fact, they've reduced death rates from 3.6 per 100,000 down to 0.4 per 100,000. That represents a 90% reduction in sudden death um, in sportsmen with this ECG testing. And in this country, we don't actually offer screening nationally. The government doesn't sponsor it. But the Lawn Tennis Association, the Football Association, Rugby Union, Rugby League, and the English Institute of Sport all offer screening to their athletes. But one of the major Achilles heels of this screening is the high incidence of false positive rates, people having ECGs that are deemed abnormal. And that's because people who exercise regularly develop electrical and structural changes to basically um, accommodate the uh, amount of work the heart's doing that can sometimes overlap with cardiac disease. 
This is an athlete's heart. You'll see the ECG shows very big spikes. Uh, this, is, this just uh, shows a big heart. And what you're seeing on the scan here is an upside-down picture of a heart. And this is usually what a normal athlete's heart looks like. But the magnitude with which these objective markers of physiological remodeling manifest is governed by several demographic factors. It's determined by the type of sport, the sex of the individual, the age, the size, and the ethnicity. And in general, the sort of people that have big hearts or bizarre ECGs are adult males with a large body surface area that participate in endurance sports such as long distance running, rowing, canoeing, cycling, and swimming. They're the sort of people that get abnormal ECGs and echocardiograms. So here's just an example. Here we've got um, um, a weightlifter, and here we've, and here we've got uh, a top cyclist. And you can see the difference in size. With weight training, there's a sudden increase in afterload on the ventricle, but not much more than that. But people who are cycling for four or five hours on end develop very, very big hearts. And sometimes these big hearts can simulate cardiac disease. And they can simulate conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is the commonest cause of sudden death in young sportsmen. Clearly, the differentiation between physiological remodeling, which is good, for, which, which is good uh, and, from, and, and pathology, is important because an erroneous diagnosis has potentially serious consequences. If I'm dealing with a young male with a slightly thickened heart muscle and I make an erroneous diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I've cost that individual psychologically, physically, and potentially financially. Conversely, if I erroneously, erroneously diagnose athlete's heart in someone with cardiomyopathy, I may have jeopardized a young life. So you're always risking being in the news for the wrong reasons in this, in this game. But the sort of research I've done is I've identified the spectrum of normal ECG changes in adults and adolescent athletes over the past 15 years. Our research has reported upper limits of structural changes within the heart of young athletes and methods of differentiating normal findings due to physiological adaptation from that uh, of conditions uh, that cause sudden death. And we've had numerous publications and I'm happy to share these with you. If you give me your email addresses afterwards, I can send you whatever you want on Athlete's Heart. I'd like to talk just briefly about black athletes, and you may wonder why I've picked black athletes in particular. Well, the black population only makes up 3% of the United Kingdom, but they make up 20% of the Premier League and 20% of the, of the GB athletes that participated in London 2012. And the reason I say this is because black athletes develop slightly bizarre ECG changes compared to white athletes, and they develop a thicker wall muscle of the heart, and they're eight times more likely to die on the sporting field than white athletes. So here's the ECG of an Olympian rower who won a gold on, your, on, your, on, your, uh, on, on my left, and on the right is a 10,000-meter black gold medalist as well. So you can see already, even though you're not, you may not be medically qualified, many of you, that in the, in the white athletes, you've got the spikes, but you've got an upright bump here. Can you see these upright bumps after the spikes? In the black athletes, you've got very down-going uh, bumps here. Can you see them? They're, they're inverted. And if we saw this in a white athlete, 
that is a sign of a very serious cardiac problem. But in black athletes, we see this in about a quarter of our black athletes, and these are normal variants in black athletes. This bar chart looks at the wall thickness measurements in a large group of national athletes. The black athletes are in the black bars, and the white athletes are in the white bars. You or I have a wall thickness that measures between 7 millimeters and 11 millimeters. That's what our left ventricular wall thickness measures. If we look at this graph, you'll find that 3% of white athletes have a wall thickness that measures more than 12. In contrast, 18% of black athletes have a wall thickness that measures more than 12, but never more than 16. So the thing to, um, <coughs> the thing to sort of emphasize is that black athletes do get very bizarre ECG changes and marked hypertrophy, and some of our research has been uh, conducted to be able to differentiate normal from abnormal even in this group. And finally, I'd like to just say a couple of words about my Olympic experience. I was very lucky to work with the Olympics. I was, an, I, I, I was a volunteer. I was responsible for the marathon, the triathlon, the long-distance cycling, the cycling time trials, the Olympic marathon, the 20K walk, and the 50K walk. I was exhausted afterwards, but to be able to stand almost next to the medalists as they got onto the podium was a real honor. Uh, also, meeting and looking after people like Eddie Izzard and uh, look, looking at the hearts of some of the best athletes in the world was a real honor for me. And this is what we found when we tested all our Olympians. We tested 1,022, of which half were male, and they participated in 35 sports. When we tested them, 13% had an ECG which we would deem abnormal for the general population. A quarter had a big heart, but that's not surprising. Just over 4% needed further tests for me to be sure that they didn't have a cardiac problem. But here are some, this is, this is an eye-opener. Three had a condition that could have potentially killed them. And two we had to treat as an emergency before they could actually compete. 1% had a problem, a valve problem, that may not cause problem now and may, that may not affect their athletic career, but may cause trouble in their 50s and 60s. So ladies and gentlemen, I, I hope I've given you some idea of the sort of work I do that will open up uh, some questions. I should say that cardiac screening, although laudable, is controversial. Not everybody agrees with this. Uh, people question the cost effectiveness, the false positive rates and its ramification, and the lack of infrastructure uh, and um, the lack of finances really in this country. So with that, I'll finish and uh, pass you back on to Haley. Thank you very much for your attention. Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have a slight change of tack now and go from the heart to actually some of the more of the joints of the body. And just to give you a little bit of background about me, I, I combined two things. I actually started out life as a physiotherapist and ended up then pursuing a career in engineering. And now I combine the two skills to look at how the human body works and how we get things like joint injury and disease. And the model that I've been using is, is rowing. And this kind of came about by a an odd route in that uh, the local, uh, the college rowing coach approached me because I did research in back pain and he said, you know, Alison, 
rowies, they're always getting back pain. It's messing up Henley Royal Regatta. We're not getting the points for the crews, and I'm not getting the funding to keep the boat club doing. What, what, we, what are you going to do about this? And I think he kind of thought I was just going to say, do a couple of stretches, do a bit of this, and they'll be fine. Um, and because at this stage I knew absolutely nothing about rowing, I had to go on this rather incremental learning curve. So rowing is the model I'm going to talk to you about, and, and the original context was to try and understand why these athletes got back pain. But some of the approaches that we've used could be actually applied to many other daily activities or sporting activities to try and understand how injuries occur and if we could actually prevent them and how maybe we tackle the rising osteoarthritis problem we've got in this country. So when we look at back pain, why is it such a big problem? Um, we all know if you look at national statistics, 80% of us can expect to get back pain at some point in our lives. So it's, in, in many ways, you could argue it's a normal condition, seeing as most of us will experience it at some point. But when you look at the statistics of, about sport in this particular age group, we find that 32% of college rowers get it, 75% of internationals get back pain. And for those 75, it can make a huge difference because if you've got that back problem, the month before the Olympics, the chances were you weren't going to compete and because of the way the crews are announced, your crew wouldn't get to race. So it actually has quite a huge impact. And even earlier on, it can, it can result in 24 lost, lost days of training, which for an athlete at that level, again, can make the difference between winning or not winning a medal. So it's actually quite a big problem. So when I came into this, I brought to my recollection um, the front page of the what was then the National Society for Back Pain Research's um, front cover. And in the occupational world, we know that this position isn't good for your back. We've got now lifting guidelines and lots of regulations. And as I put straight away to the coach, well, the problem is you're doing the same thing. You've just turned it 180 degrees. So why aren't we applying what we know from occupational world into a sporting world? But of course, Knowing that it's bad for you doesn't stop people doing things, as we know from so many walks of life. And actually, there are the positives from taking part in, in sport, which our previous speakers already alluded to. So how do we make it safe so we don't give these people problems? So the first thing I noticed, coming from a, uh, living near Putney but never noticing the rowies going on and up and down the river there, was when I did start to look. These people in a boat here are... They're all supposed to be in the same position of the rowing stroke. But if you look at them all, they're all holding their backs in slightly different ways. And of course, we all know to stand properly and correctly and sit with great deportment. So why aren't they using the same position in the boat when they're all supposed to be in the same part of the stroke? So that was the first question. And what we started then looking at is how can I understand how somebody rowing is using their back? So one of the things we know from looking at back pain, people often just say, well, we need to look at how the spine moves. But they, we always forget, and we tend in science to go, it's much easier just to look at one joint because they're all so complicated, and the spine's particularly complicated with all its different segments. And we forget, actually, the, how the spine moves very much depends on what your hips are doing, your knees are doing, your ankles are doing. So we did simplify our model of rowing, but we stuck to the lower limb and the back and the pelvis first of all. And just for those of you who aren't so acquainted with rowing, what you basically do is you start off this position, which is called the catch, which is where you produce all your power. That's the, that's the bit where they pull like hell and the, send the boat flying. And then they drive that power through to accelerate the boat through the water until they finish at the end of the stroke. And they do it that again and again and again. So it's a bit like standing up and sitting down off the seat you're sitting on. 
several thousand times just to get yourself down the course. So of course you're going to get tired and you're going to change how you do it. So what we did is we brought some simple measurements and biomechanics to this, this problem so we could really understand what was going on. Because you can watch how somebody moves, but it's not until you really tune your eyes in that you can see everything that's going on. And sometimes it's very hard to process what you see into something that you can use constructively. So, of course, being a college of technology and innovation, we built things and we made things work. So we took a normal rowing machine and we basically started adding things to it and adding bits of instrumentation so we could measure things. And what we basically did is, and what we've been trying to do is look at where all the forces are generated by the rower. So we want to look at how hard they pull on the handle. And initially what we wanted to do was look at how the body's moving. And because we were looking at the back pain issue, we looked at the pelvis, the lower lumbar spine, and also the thigh so we could understand what the hip was doing. And how we started was very much limited by how much money we had and, and what resource we could use. So this is how we started. And we started um, then looking at how they moved. And it progressed a little bit from there by lots of student projects. Oh. I need to just get this video working for you. And this is just so you can see how it works. So this is one of our uh, now gold medalists and three-time <coughs> silver medalist athletes a few years back on the rowing machine. So you can see she's all got these wires attached to her. And on, at the end of each of those wires is a sensor. And that's telling her how she rows. And as she rows, she gets to see a lovely little stick man telling her what her body's doing. Because one of the first things I started realising when I did this work is that even with an athlete, their awareness of how they move and hold their body wasn't ideal. The other thing, if we just play that loop again, if we can, that you'll notice. So here she is rowing her heart out and she's getting the feedback and she can, she can see how hard she's pulling. But the other powerful thing of getting this feedback is this person lurking here in the background is her coach. And of course, he's the person. The whole concept of coaching is getting them to, be, to move better and move more powerfully. And what was particularly nice is this little stick man suddenly becomes a common language between the two of them because he can explain what he wants her to do and she can see it straight away whether she's doing it or not. So it's a lovely form of what we call biofeedback and is actually very powerful. Now, what she then sees on the screen is something this simple. So this is the curve that tells her how hard she's pulling. And the coaches have a dark art of telling you what shape that should be. And they all, of course, argue how it should be. So I'm not even going to try and interpret that bit. But this is the bit I try and interpret. And although we, the student who did this biofeedback didn't quite get the size of the seg body segments as ideal as once, so you have a very big thigh and a much bigger pelvis and a smaller back than you probably should have, what essentially you have here is this line's representing what their thigh is doing. This yellow is how they're holding their pelvis, so the bit between here and here, so from the top of the hips to the bottom of the spine. And the red is showing you where their spine is. And what we can simply say to the athlete is what we want you to do is keep the red and the yellow parallel and try and keep them aligned. So that's somebody who does it quite well. And the reason for trying to keep those is you take the load and the pressure off the lower part of the spine and you don't wear that intervertebral disc out. So it makes it slightly safer for them. In contrast, this is one of the other athletes who wasn't doing it so well. And what you can see here is a very angled spine. So you can imagine if they're constantly opening up and closing their spine thousands of time up and down the rowing lake as they're training, they're going to be wearing that joint out. It's just simple mechanics and wearing out that's going on. But this gives us a medium to start explaining to them how we want them to hold themselves and telling them whether or not they're achieving it. 
And we've used it to look at a whole range of aspects of training. So what happens when you get tired? Are you less likely to hold that perfect posture? Because we all know that when we start, we stand properly and correctly, but by the end of my talk, I'm going to be slouching too. We wanted to see what happened as you, as you try to exercise at harder intensity. So in training, they train at quite a low rating, but obviously that's very different from the way you saw them competing, where they were at full whack at the start of the race, slowed down in the middle and then sprinted at the end. And we also wanted to see what happened. Did it change as, the, as they trained? Could you improve it? Was it any use as a performance metric? And we also looked at how it related to injury and how we could use it to help them rehabilitate from injury. And basically, by using some of these techniques, we were able to make the athletes more biomechanically efficient for the same physiological workload. But that was, for us, became the key carrot. Because when we talked to athletes and we said to them, we want you to do it this way because it's going to stop you getting injury. Many of them were still at that age where they were invincible. They'd never had injury and they'd never had illness. So why should I listen? Why should I do it differently when I perceive I'm more powerful doing it the way I've always done it? And when we could then show this link to being more biomechanically efficient for the same physiological workload, we suddenly found the rowing population and community listening to us, particularly the athletes and especially the coaches. And that has now led on to our now over 10-year relationship with the sport. It's also meant once you start doing a small amount of biofeedback and performance analysis, they suddenly want you to do a lot more. So, of course, we've had to make our system a lot more complicated so as well as instrumenting the row, we now have taken the rowing machine apart a lot more. So basically what we've done is we've put fancy measuring devices on the foot plates. We've put load cells. Uh, we've got our feedback. We've put load cell on the handle so we can see how far the handle travels so we can calculate power as well as force applied. And we've also got pressure gauges on the seat so we know how somebody is sitting on the seat because one of the elements of good rowing is you suspend yourself off the seat. You don't actually sit on it, which might come as a shock of some people who sit in gyms. And we've also been able to look at how they push through the foot plates to see that we optimise the force they produce and we keep it symmetrical if we can. And the sort of readout they now get gets a lot more complicated. We still have our stick man, slightly more in proportions now, but we get to see what force is coming through the left and right foot we have a bouncy tennis ball telling them how well they're sitting on the centre of the seat and we're able to now tell them that the more drift you get from side to side is indicative of a poorer performance. So it's better to try and keep your centre of gravity in that central plane. And the variations with foot plates, we're still just trying to understand that what we're trying to use it for is to set the athlete up safely in the boat so that they don't change their mechanics and overload their spines and get injury. So that's looking at biomechanics and how people move, but of course the things that make us move are our muscles, so we also wanted to see how muscles linked in with all of this. And in the sporting world and also in the back pain population world, there's been this huge myth or concept of core stability and it's all down to one key muscle and there were these very simple exercises that people were doing. And actually we found that that work, a bit similar to some of the cardiology, it's not transferable to a sporting population. These people are very, very different. And actually, what we found were there were very simple things that were important to athletes that were different from the population. And we put them through various um, imaging and strength testing. So this is one of our Olympians being strength tested. Now, they particularly enjoy this testing because it's maximal testing. 
and you can't beat the system. So they affectionately name this the machine of death, so they have a great relationship with it, as you can tell. But what we were able to see was probably not surprising. The athletes were much stronger than the student population, club-level, rugby, rowing athletes. But what was particularly interesting was that balance of strength. It wasn't proportional. So if you think, we've, you might have heard about people hamstring um, quadriceps ratio, or if you think of the body as an upright structure, if one muscle's pulling too much this way and the other one's not balancing it, you're out of proportion and you not only change your posture, but you also change the way you load your joints. One of the other frightening things we found with these athletes is despite it being classified as an endurance sport, their endurance patterns were the same as the rest of us in that normal population. So straight away we found an area where we could change their program and change their training, which is exactly what we did, much to their hatred. Um, we changed some of those things and we now have uh, a back strengthening program that addresses the abdominal, the back, the bum muscles and a whole host of muscles in a strengthening capacity, not just about trying to get muscles activating. So I think I'm running out of time, but what we've tried to use is biomechanics, one, to make people more mechanically efficient, but at the same time as making them efficient, we've tried to protect their joints so they don't get injury. We've been able to find a common language between our, our rehabilitationists, our physios, our coaches, and our doctors to get athletes that are injured back on track. And actually, because we've been doing this for so long, some of our athletes, we've got data on them for the past 10 years, so we can see how they've been changing or progressing and almost by some of these measurements, we can start saying, something's going wrong here, we need to intervene and get them back in. So it becomes a very good marker and a, a very strong potential. So I think it's a, a first step to trying understanding injury and preventing it, um, and trying to find how we get people back from injury. And although we have focused primarily in this talk, and most of the work we've done has been on our elite squad who have done exceedingly well this year and all of those crews that won medals have been through our lab we are translating this work down to a club level and it has actually changed the way training programs are written by club level coaches and some of the exercises these athletes do so it can make a difference at the top as well as at the bottom of a sports which I think is particularly important and uh, hopefully I'll get to answer some questions later thank you Um, thank you, Alison. And if Nicola could uh, make the last talk. Thank you very much. Um, we are made to move. Therefore, can I ask you to stand up and stretch? We've been sitting down for 40 minutes. <laughs> okay, give me a nice big stretch. Good. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Now, I'm Nick Maffoli. You can sit down. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I happen to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I'm the professor of sports and exercise medicine and one of the orthopedic consultants uh, within Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. Um, but my background is slightly different from a classical orthopedic surgeon in that I started my professional life as a molecular biologist. And so I was experimenting from the time I really started. Uh, the fact that I became an orthopedic surgeon is due to my father, who was a doctor, and uh, my auntie, because she fractured her ankle, and uh, my father referred her to a friend of his, and I hap who happened to be a friend of the family, and um, when I accompanied my auntie, he asked me to scrub up with him, and uh, the rest is history. Now, uh, the, uh, I've, been, I've been involved in sports from a relatively young age. Um, 
all of us have been involved with the Olympics, as you've seen. And I've been put in charge um, since 2008 to develop the orthopedic foot and ankle services at the Olympics and the Paralympics. And we were just comparing notes with Professor Sham, and we found out that uh, we really, we worked jolly hard. Um, it was a bit like being back to being a junior doctor at the times when we were doing 120 hours a week, because we were essentially always on call. And in addition, I was given the task of looking after my um, two sports, um, you know, I was never an Olympian. The best I managed was a 14-year European championship, but I looked after wrestling and judo. Um, it was great fun, uh, but you can imagine the amount of injuries, small injuries, but nevertheless, you know, they were keeping you busy. So I was a team leader in that, uh, um, in that field. It was an absolutely unique experience. But now, uh, my self-appointed task for today is to show you that in the field of orthopedic sports medicine, although we claim to be at the forefront, new is not always better. Now, remember, um, we, are in a, we are in a world of evidence-based medicine, but it doesn't matter because we cannot fight and win against preconceived ideas. You will always find somebody who will say, oh well, but it works beautifully well for me, therefore I'm not going to change. And you cannot fight that kind of conception. Also, if you think about it, we are here today because we are programmed to like novelties. Okay? Um, we would not have evolved uh, if we didn't like new, and, if, uh, and we believe that if it is new, it must be better. It is ingrained in our psyche. We cannot escape from it. Now, we like progress, and we are fascinated by it, um, and at times, we have to take big leaps of faith. And at times, we allow ourselves to be pushed. Now, I don't know if there are any orthopedic surgeons in the audience, but we are enormously pushed, for example, by companies. We're not talking about drug companies, but uh, by companies who produce, for example, new plates, new screws, new devices that are more shiny, they have you know, better colors, they are in titanium instead of, um, instead of stainless steel, um, they have nice pastel colors, they are very appealing to the nursing staff, everybody likes them and so on. And nevertheless, there is not a thing of evidence that they are better than very often the cheaper options that were sold until yesterday. Now also, uh, we are orthopedic surgeons. Now you, if you look at me from this side, you will recognize me that way, okay? Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a big head, okay, thick skull. Uh, orthopedic surgeons are classically said to be twice as strong as an ox, but only half as intelligent. Um, given my size, I'm probably twice as strong as a calf, but nevertheless. Um, and our, our brain is not terribly well developed. Also, um, in order to get to the brain, um, you know, look, at, look at the distance between uh, the outside world and the brain itself. It takes an awful long while to get there. Also, when eventually an idea has embedded itself in here, imagine how long it takes for it to be dislodged by a new idea. Okay, so you will, not be, you will not be surprised to, uh, to know that it is very difficult to convince orthopedic surgeons that uh, um, some things may have changed over the course of the, next, of the last 25 years or so. Now, when I was in training, um, I was working uh, with a variety of people, but the, one of the guys who really had a great influence in my, um, in my training and my choice of career um, is John King. John is the guy who really started sports medicine in this country in the place where I'm now the center lead, where I'm now the director. And John told me, you know, um, bone always heals, cartilage never heals, 
Um, so the way in which we can make some difference is looking after soft tissues, so it's tendon and muscles. And so I decided that tendon and muscles would have been my, the challenge that I would have tackled. Now, if you think about it, looking at you, you must be active. Many of you are athletes, many of you will be physically active, many of you will have been athletes. In my case, I have been an athlete and I've paid the price for it because there's now hardly an operation that I offer one of my patients that I haven't had myself. So it's one of the prices to pay. And we always talk about regenerative medicine. And, you know, is this the final frontier that we have to tackle in this respect? I am sure that you will have read about platelet-rich plasma, PRP. Because if you haven't, uh, you know, I really don't know where you lived. Um, it is really at the forefront nowadays. Um, there are entire clinics now, um, probably not so much in this country, but surely in Europe, especially in Central and Southern Europe and in the States. And indeed, in the States, there are guys who charge $7,000 for a single injection of platelet-rich plasma. So what is done is jolly simple. A small aliquot of blood is taken from a vein in the forearm, about 10 milliliters, or at times a bit more, let's say up to 50 milliliters. Then it is centrifuged, and there is a, a small portion of platelet-rich plasma which is, which, is, uh, which is aspirated and injected in the, in, in the painful area of the, of the athlete. Now, um, it all started more than 50 years ago. So it's not a novelty, is it? It started 50 years ago. Actually, a bit more than 50 years ago. But let's say 50 years ago, when the first good publication was, uh, um, was on, um, um, came, on, came on the market. But nevertheless, it only came to the forefront in, uh, uh, when it was published in the New York Times uh, because one of the American football players who uh, injured his medial collateral ligament um, decided that uh, um, he wanted this wonderful new therapy and lo and behold, he went, he progressed well, and he played at the Super Bowl. Now, if you watch American football, you know that in reality, playing at the Super Bowl, it means that he played several stretches of a few seconds at the Super Bowl, okay? He didn't play as he would have played um, in, in, a, in a real soccer game. And if you know anything about the natural history of, um, of media collateral ligament injuries, you will know that probably um, the uh, length of time that he took to return to sport uh, was within biological, vi biological variability, but he made the New York Times. And since that time, there's been enormous, an enormous explosion of this wonderful new therapy. Now, we've been studying tendons for a long while. My first publication on this um, dates back, on tendons, dates back to 1987. At that time, you know, I was still competing. I was a lot lighter than I am now. I still had some hair, and it was great fun. I could still run. Um, and um, we looked at tendons. With, we, we showed, for example, that, uh, um, that uh, a tendinopathic tendon, a tendon which is painful, is not just painful, is not just pathological at the area where it's, uh, where it's painful, but it is the whole tendon can be affected. And we look at tendons in, in, a very, in a very sort of holistic fashion. Now, if you think about it, I see patients with tendon problems at this stage when they become symptomatic. Now, I work in a tertiary and quaternary referral center. Therefore, I don't see, I very rarely see patients at the time of onset of symptoms, the moment they start to, to, becoming, to become painful. What we know is that by the time these tendons become painful, in reality, it's from a biological viewpoint already too late because um, 
this lesion is already chronic. A lot of factors have been acting on, the, on that lesion. And we all know about risk factors. We all talk about injury. We all talk about uh, overuse and so on. But, you know, if you think about it, there are a lot of factors that we don't know yet. And genetics, I will show you later, does play a role. I'm sure that you will have come across people who run, say, 120 miles a, a week, and they're fine, and they, win, and they win, win Olympic medals, and guys who go out for a jog and come back with a destroyed tendon. So there must be something there. And then, you know, at surgery, we can do a lot of things. I can take a sample of the tendon, send it to the lab, and we can do all sorts of uh, very interesting experiments on them. Um, but we really don't know what is happening in the tendon itself. So um, when we use uh, PRP uh, and we try to extract new life from blood, from the blood of the same individual, are we really, um, are we really expanding any, on any truth or are we risking committing sort of ritual suicide by doing that? Um, PRP is now used as a real panacea. Um, if you are a, studi a student of classics, you will know that panacea uh, was the goddess of healing. Um, she was born of a doctor, Asclepius, and of a goddess, a pioneer, and she was given this wonderful poultice that was put on everything and everybody and was able to make everything absolutely magically better, including um, psychological and, and psychiatric diseases. So it's real you know, Nobel Prize type of, type of thing. And we worked together with Isabella Andia and Michael Sanchez, who are two of the guys who in Europe introduced um, PRP more than 20 years ago. They've done very well. They collaborate with um, a maxillofacial surgeon called Eduardo Anitua, who has expanded on all, on all this and now goes around in a private jet. So it's, uh, the, the only time I, I flew in a private jet was when I went over to, to, to see him in Vitoria in northern Spain, and he sent his jet over to uh, Denmark because I was lecturing in Denmark. I was in a superb flight. So uh, if you want to know what you do, if there, is any, uh, if there are any high school students, um, choose maxillofacial surgery, okay? Not orthopedics. Now, one of the ways in which we can, uh, in which we can uh, demonstrate whether a treatment is superior to another is by undertaking randomized controlled trials. So essentially, there are two treatments, and we have a group of patients who are grossly the same, and in a totally blind fashion, we administer one treatment to, uh, to, to some of them and the other treatment to the remaining group of them, and then we have somebody else who is not involved in the treatment to evaluate them at a time. We did exactly this in, uh, um, in some problems of the rotator cuff, and lo and behold, we showed that there is no statistically significant difference in all the various parameters. So essentially, we gave some very expensive injections and we prolonged our operating time. Um, therefore, we used more resources for the NHS than we, sh than we could have done to, no, uh, to produce no statistical difference, significant difference. And obviously, I deal with athletes, and athletes, if they get injured, they want to go back playing tomorrow, okay? No, actually, not tomorrow, tonight. Um, so, uh, athletes do use PRP, and I've been part of this commission of the IOC, of the International Olympic Committee, who looked at the use of PRP in sports. And what we did find is that just about everybody in uh, the sporting world, in the elite sporting world, had, um, if not uh, used, at least considered to use PRP for their ailments, and there are many, as you know. Um, what we did find is that also there are something like 
20 different formulations of PRP. So there are present 20 companies who each markets a different kit to produce PRP. Okay, so it's as if we had penicillin, but uh, 20 different types of penicillin. And what is worse is that uh, there is no way in which we can standardize that penicillin. So it's as if I had hundreds of vials of penicillin, but I don't know the strength of each of them. And I just take them at random and inject them into, uh, into a patient. And if you think about it, this is tonight, we've had a hard day at work, uh, we've been sitting for a while, if we took PRP now from us, an aliquot of some of, of blood, and we tried to extract PRP, our PRP would be different from the one that we had this morning, okay? Um, and there is no way in which we can know whether, um, whether the, two, the two preparations are in any way equivalent. So, uh, you know, when we do studies, uh, what we found is that we don't provide really, in this field, we don't provide strong evidence for or against the use of these materials for tender augmentation or the like, but we have, we produce more and more, uh, more and more nice uh, uh, topics for discussion. Now, what about muscle tears? What is the evidence for muscle tears? Well, everybody has used it for muscle tears and um, the evidence is staggering because now there are more opinion papers than clinical papers on the topic. So there are more people who come up and talk about it um, instead of publishing their experience in this, in this respect. And classically, uh, the studies are very small. I mean, if you think about it, um, the, a muscle tear is the most common tear, uh, is the most common injury in the premiership, in the soccer premiership in this country. And nevertheless, studies are done on about five to 10 athletes. So they are really not representative at all of, of reality. And when meta-analytical ana um, uh, methods are, ap are applied to, the, to the, this whole topic, there is, um, there is really um, the usual conclusion is that we cannot draw definitive conclusion on the potential risks or benefit of this particular thing. And now, now that I told you about about this, and now that you know a bit more about this, would you still want your doctor to use PRP on you? Or even better, would you want, it to use, would you want your doctor to use PRP on your sister, brother, or beloved, uh, beloved relative? Or would you want to push for appropriate studies? I was telling you about genetics, and it may well be that genetics you know, does, exert, uh, does exert some influence in what we do. Indeed, um, for a while I was a, a, a visiting research scientist at the third department of physiology at the Karolinska Institute. At the time, the professor was the guy who really invented exercise physiology, Per Olof Ostrand, and he used to tell us that it was very easy to become an Olympic champion, providing that you choose your parents well. So uh, it really lies, it, it lies all in the genes, and maybe it not only we have to inherit, a good, inherit good genes in order to, to be able to run fast and so on, but um, maybe that genetics plays a role in, uh, in some of the ailments that we suffer from. Um, so we know, for example, that there are some variants of, the, of collagen and of tenacin C, which is another, one of the other substances that uh, um, composes tendons, that uh, some variants uh, predispose us to having uh, to have tendinopathies, to develop painful tendons and uh, for our tendons to rupture. And it is possible that uh, uh, tendinopathy, painful tendons, may be polygenic, so many genes are involved, but 
genetics is not enough. We need the trigger, and the trigger may be the overuse, that, that the, the exercise that we impose on those, uh, on, those, uh, on those tendons. What we know is that one single nucleotide, one single gene, sorry, one single nucleotide in one single gene can be um, deleterious for us. This is uh, one of our cases. This is a guy who ruptured his quadriceps tendon, some of the tendons around, uh, around his knees. And when we analyzed this genotype, we did find that uh, this particular area um, had a difference. This was just one single nucleotide in his DNA for this particular gene that was changed, and it has been shown to be associated with this, with this rupture. So that may, that may be that there is some marriage into this. So there could be that some of us are predisposed to develop problems, but by the same tokens, it may be that certain variants of these genes are highly protective. And these are probably the guys who can tolerate a lot of an enormous load of what they do and uh, you know, run faster, longer, and, uh, and, get, and get there first. So innovation is good. However, we need scientific evidence. And we must be alert to the power of marketing. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's very persuasive to have you know, marketing techniques are now very, very sophisticated and uh, uh, we have to, to be able to resist to them. But don't forget that uh, many published study results cannot be reproduced, okay? Um, in orthopedics, as in many areas of medicine, uh, if there is a conflict of interest, i.e. essentially, if the study uh, has been financed by a company, then that study tends to favor uh, the product that is being tested, okay? That's an enormous conflict of interest. Um, there is a preference for positive result. And if you think about it, nobody gets promotion for publishing a negative study. And the hardest study, the hardest study to do in, uh, in our field are blinded study. Um, they are expensive, they require, they require a lot of resources, and therefore they are not done. Now you can smile because we are close to the end. Okay? And let me tell you, if you wish to know more, then come and talk to me at the Center for Sports and Exercise Medicine. Um, we have started the MSc in Sports and Exercise Medicine. Now, 30 years ago, is the longest and best MSc course in, uh, um, in Sports and Exercise Medicine in the UK, well, in the British Isles, actually, and in most of the Commonwealth. We also have an intercalated BSc in Sports and Exercise Medicine. So if there are any medical students, um, this year we have 22 medical students from all over the country and uh, some from Ireland as well. Um, if you just cannot wait, come and see me at the Gateway Surgical Center, Newham University Hospital. It is the university hospital closest to the Olympic Village, and we had some fun over there. But every four years, in the Olympic town, there is the World Post Trauma Congress. And in just a few weeks, there will be um, the World Post Trauma Congress at the Queen Elizabeth Center, very close by to here, and where the world of uh, orthopedic sports trauma will get together and uh, will um, you know, we'll, we'll have some fun exchanging ideas and so on. And also, come over to Naples, my hometown, the home of pizza. Okay, we're gonna have a pizza together. Um, uh, there is the Italian Society of Muscle, Ligament, and Tendons. Uh, some of my fellows funded it, and I happen to be the first president, and um, the, the society has been started in English um, because we wanted to, uh, to underline the, um, the global interest that we have in muscles, ligament, and tendons. And we have a journal, Muscle, Ligament, and Tendon Journal, uh, so um, send us papers. But in the end, thank you for your attention, there is still a mountain to climb uh, up there. Um, we started in a few of us down here 
we could see, or at least we thought that we could see the, uh, the, the tip of the mountain, but progress has been slow, and every so often, only some of us have been able to keep on climbing. Thank you. Right, well, thank you very much to our three speakers. I'm going to start the ball rolling by asking a couple of questions. And then uh, the mic's <coughs> going to go out to everyone else in the room. And uh, my microphone people are at the back, ready to run forward as soon as this part is over. Um, so I think the most obvious question that I'd like to ask is that I did a, a Google search for sports injuries um, during uh, the 2012 Olympics and came up with surprisingly little. Now, that might be because of the slightly GB-centric reporting, um, but it does suggest um, that we must have been doing quite well at injury management lately. Um, so I'd like to ask each of the speakers to say a little something about uh, whether or not the 2012 Olympics and Paralympics actually represented a success in the reduction and management of injuries and uh, sports-related health conditions with reference to your own experiences. If I could start with, if I could start with uh, Sanjay. Thanks very much. As I said, my job really was to make sure that no one died at the Olympics, I guess. And, and I think we succeeded. There were no catastrophes, but that's not surprising. I'd said to you earlier that death rates in sportsmen are low, uh, and the um, incidence is one in 50,000, so we weren't expecting anything. Uh, as I said, uh, if, we, if we test sportsmen, whether it's the Olympians or the FA uh, or rugby, one thing I can tell you is that one in 300 young athletes have a condition that could potentially kill them, and that held true with the Olympics, and we were able to identify those at risk and put things right, but that's not to say they would have died had we not done that, but we did identify um, two or three serious problems. In fact, the, the thing that surprised me and something that we must always cater for, and we did, we catered very well, was it wasn't the athletes that were running into trouble with their hearts, it was their coaches and the <laughs> officials most of the people I looked after with angina and heart problems were the coaches. In fact, there were the coaches and officials made up more in number than the athletes. And of course, then there were people from developing countries who had never had their hearts tested and who had conditions that we don't regularly see in this country. But I, I think uh, certainly the, the cardiac side of uh, the, uh, the Olympics was, was perfect. So I, I really, I wasn't expecting anything. And I said that beforehand, but I just was hoping that I wouldn't be um, swallowing my words at the end. Alison? Um, well, I, I guess from the, uh, I can only speak about the rowers, and yes, there were injuries in the crews, but they were managed and they all managed to compete. So there were, I know of two of the athletes with medals around their neck that have long-term and quite serious back complaints that have managed to keep competing and performing at a high level and some of those injuries have been brewing or simmering in the background might be a better way of putting it which maybe if we hadn't done some of the interventions and changes to them would have stopped them from competing so um, the impact we had on other countries I don't know but we certainly made sure all of our top athletes were fit and could compete at the level they needed to to achieve the results they got um, Nicola the uh, the IOC holds uh, a database of all the injuries uh, suffered from uh, the athletes taking part in all the Olympics. Um, we had, uh, in wrestling, uh, we had our own database, which we are still analyzing. 
What we do know is that uh, judo, even though it's considered to be a gentle art, is not quite as gentle. Um, if you ever done judo, you know that you can strangle and choke your opponent, and you can arm lock your opponent. And wrestling is traditionally considered a very rough sport, and you cannot do any of that in wrestling instead, okay? Um, we, we had some um, interesting cases in, uh, in the finals, um, because it's uh, the spur of the moment, and uh, you have that, that only opportunity at times in a lifetime to be at that kind of level. Um, but uh, not in that, uh, all in all, only one athlete had to give up, um, had to give up the, the competition because of injury. So we're very pleased that way. Uh, and that for my experience in wrestling and judo. My other hat was um, the um, orthopedic foot and ankle service. And uh, we're discussing with Professor Sham. Um, I had, again, more coaches and officials having problems <coughs> that needed my attention than athletes. However, of the athletes, um, you will have seen uh, at least two or three on, uh, um, on TV. And I cannot tell you more because of confidentiality reasons, but um, there have been some, uh, some serious injuries that have been suffered there. And at least one, med one gold medal hope <coughs> has been shattered by a foot and ankle injury. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I think given where we are with time, I think I will I'll stop asking questions and I'll let um, the floor answer questions, ask questions. So um, I'll just remind you of everybody's names because I've realised I didn't give out a handout and I haven't put names in front. Um, we're happy to go by first names. So we've Sanjay and Alison and Nicola. And if you'd like to raise a hand if you have a question and I will start. Ah, gentleman in the red down near the front. And there's, sorry, so there's, um, microphones are coming your way. Um, I, would like I would like to ask the panel a uh, question about uh, sort of tennis. Uh, everybody probably is aware about uh, Rafael Nadal. Uh, my daughter is training uh, tennis, started training tennis, and I would like to sort of uh, hear what panel would advise for the future to avoid, you know, similar perennial problems. Thank you very much. Right, right. Well, um, well, one of the problems of dealing with elite athletes is that uh, you cannot rely on the press. So nobody really knows precisely what's happened to Rafael Nadal. And what I know about Rafael Nadal is because I, s I know the doctor who treats him, okay? And I cannot tell you what, what it is. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the reality is that in elite sport, nowadays we are playing for longer, we are playing essentially there is no rest period, and uh, these guys are training a lot more than they used to. I mean, if you think about it, um, in uh, in the 70s and early 80s, there were millionaires like um, Gerulaitis who were able to play essentially for fun. Okay, they had enormous fortunes behind that. But they, they were coming from enormously wealthy family families, and they they were playing at an extremely high level for fun essentially. Now. It's not like that. They are full-time athletes. Um, they, are, they, are, they just have to train all the time. And if you think about soccer, they are now the average premiership soccer player ends up, can play up to 65 games a year. If you think premiership plus championships plus UEFA and at times uh, international fixture for the World Cup and so on, it's an enormous amount of load. Um, Maybe that uh, some of us have the right genes to be able to perform but have not uh, the right genes to be able to be resilient for long enough. Have I answered your question? Yeah. 
gentleman at this side over there. Uh, in the first aid treatment for acute um, muscle and joint injuries, what's your feelings about the efficacy of the rice treatment and current oh, sorry? rice? Rest, ice, comfortable support and elevation uh, with regard to athletes. Well, the um, rest is now being changed with modified rest. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we know that uh, um, a given activity induces pain and we judge pain in a, very, in a very sort of subjective fashion, then we would try and change the activity that that person can undertake. Um, there is very little evidence on ice. Okay, we all use it. It does have some analgesic properties simply because it's, it freezes the area. But there is very little evidence on very very little scientific evidence on that. What about with regard to time scale? Because some people are saying prolonged ice treatment causes vasodilation and may be counterproductive. Um, that is one of the disputes. Yes. Um, there is, however, uh, I don't know if you heard, but in terms of cryotherapy, there are now extreme cryotherapy chambers that are very much in fashion. Uh, there are essentially chambers where the temperature can go down to sort of minus 80 uh, Celsius, and the, the players can go in for a few minutes and come back and so on. And they have superb results, but for the time being, they're only anecdotal. Um, they are used, but there is very little published evidence at the place. This gentleman just to this side in the blue. Hi. Uh, oh, sorry. My name is Hugo. I'm an orthopedic SHOA in North London. Um, I was just directing a question to Alison. I find the biomechanics analysis particularly interesting in the biofeedback. Uh, in running, if you look at Lieberman's barefoot running movement, um, it's interesting because it's a lot of the theoretically is beneficial, but there's not really any evidence, enough evidence to for it or against it, apart from his article published in Nature, which, as we said before, they're a conflict of interest in a, a single article. Um, with regards to your rowers and the biofeedback that you performed on them, has there been a prospective data collection with any improvement in outcomes since those interventions were employed? Yeah, one of the, what we did, um we tested some athletes pre-Athens in a, what's called a step test, which is a performance test that they do to look at their lactate and their performance levels. And we repeated that test two years later. And uh, there were seven athletes, because of obviously injury, there were seven athletes in common to both sets of testing. And that's where we were able to find that they were biomechanically more efficient for the same physiological workload. So by changing their training patterns, in terms of the strength training that we, we altered and changing the way the coaches focused on the coaching and gave them feedback, we were able to change the style of rowing and make them more efficient. And I think that kind of concept could be applied to running. And the problem with this argument of, um, shall we call it shod and barefoot running, is that the, there are people that say, we as w the Western world has got used to wearing shoes and running in trainers with support and um, cushioning, and you run very differently with those sort of trainers than you would if you were barefoot. And barefoot running, if you've always run barefoot, you run in a certain way, but to suddenly go from wearing shoes to then running barefoot, and you try and run the same way you would run in your trainers, that's when problems arise. But you're absolutely right, there's a total lack of evidence. And 
I, I, I'm one of those stupid people who run, and you just go to buy a pair of trainers, and what do you buy? Are you a stability shoe, an overpronator? Do you want extra cushioning here? Do you want the flashy stripes down the side, or should you have the ones that light the soles up? And I think there's, there's a whole lot out there, and if you're the poor person that's said, you know, I'm inspired by the Olympics, I want to start running, where do you start? And you really put yourselves in the hands of whoever happens to be selling shoes that day. Do they know what they're talking about? And even something as fundamental, should I wear stability shoes or overpronator shoes, we don't have the evidence for. Um, you know, we're trying to, to do that, but we have to find the funding for the research. But there's people, <coughs> and there are techniques now there to do it, but um, it's slow progress. Thanks. I think what's particularly interesting about your study is it's, it's you can look at an intervention of the biofeedback, yeah. whereas the... A lot of the Lieberman's work is observational, not so much interventional. Uh, but thank but you very much. The problem is, I mean, we're particularly lucky because some of those athletes were visual learners, so they could make the change very quickly. But if you look at anything, and, and in many ways we're starting at the wrong end, we should be starting with people who have aspirations and are just taking up the sport because, like anything in life, it's a bad habit, and we all have our bad habits, and we, won't, we don't have to bring them out in the open. But if you have one of those habits, you know how hard it is to change. So if you look at people who smoke, most of them can't give up smoking. It's very difficult to change a habit. And biofeedback helps, but we also have to think of other ways. Now, athletes, if it's linked to performance and if you, they change that movement pattern, they might win a medal. That's their, that's their carrot. That's the thing that makes them want to change. But if you want to apply that to most other people, we have to really think about how we make people want to change what they do because we are all, unfortunately, very stuck in our ways, mm -hmm. just like Nick's surgeons with, his, uh, with their fancy implants. Thank you very much. If you could just pass the microphone just to um, further down the road so that gentleman is getting up to receive it. Thanks. Um, thank you very much. The question I want to raise to Sanjay, you had on your slide something saying about anabolic steroids. Um, could you comment on the use of anabolic steroids and related to that, a lot of athletes are being recommended by the health food shops to eat these um, high protein diets to build their muscles. Uh, could you comment on those two aspects, one to Sanjay in particular and the rest to the, uh, the second part to the panel? Because there's a huge market in these special protein foods that they seem to sell. Just to answer your first point, uh, what I was trying to talk about was that when we see very big hearts in athletes or bizarre ECGs, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that this individual exercises a lot and most of this is physiological remodeling. However, uh, we are also aware that uh, anabolic drug abuse can also cause the heart to become very thick uh, and clearly look abnormal. And it's very important to be able to differentiate between anabolic cardiomyopathy or anabolic related heart muscle problem. And we, there are methods of telling because the, the first thing that we can tell uh, if an athlete's abusing anabolic steroids and it's affected the heart is that although the heart pumps very well, the first thing that goes is, is, is the mechanism of relaxation. So the heart doesn't relax as well as it pumps. Um, apart from the effects on the heart, and these are only based on a few studies, um, anabolic steroids, as you know, increase blood pressure. They can cause diabetes. And many athletes that abuse athlete anabolic steroids really don't know whether you know what these contain, what the mixture is, what else is in these products. 
So obviously, as far as we're concerned, anabolic steroids are, are, are frowned upon, and the, as you know, the, the, the doping committees take this all very, very personally. Uh, but there are methods of differentiating between anabolic cardiomyopathy and a normal athletic heart. As far as the protein diet story goes, I'm not uh, qualified to really talk to you a lot about protein, but uh, my knowledge as a medic would suggest that uh, we certainly need certain amino acids for early recovery and tissue repair and regeneration. Theoretically, uh, very large protein diets can uh, cause kidney damage, but I would like to probably hand this over to some people that deal with nutrition uh, and probably more experienced than I am, maybe. My, my limited knowledge is more from working with the team and the dietitians that work with the team, and they, they very much focus on, I mean, rowing's more a sport where they look at the carbohydrate and making sure they're, they're eating, and these athletes really do eat. I mean, um, it can put you off food for a long time going out with the heavyweight men and seeing that they eat about four what we would call very large portions of very big-sized meals four or five times a day. They can really pack their food away, and I think it's... I think most people don't know how to eat healthily and, and fuel their bodies appropriately for sport, and I think sometimes this is where marketing, again, can t get people misled, and there are actually some really good um, books designed for athletes to teach them how to eat properly and keep fats down and eat the right things and fuel their bodies, and it's learning that for us, um, there is this habit amongst the rowers, they'll have this massive breakfast and then they start making these sandwiches. They go back to the breakfast bar and they start making more sandwiches and they wrap them up in the napkins and that gets shoved in their shorts and they finish their outing and they're back at it again and they're eating again. And I think it's more about making sure that your body is fueled to do the sport you do and you're not overeating but you're eating the right amounts of things. And certainly the current um, head coach for the women's squad took a long time to convince them that it wasn't just about calories so that eating lots of Danish pastries actually wasn't the answer. They had to eat the right sort of food. Um, and some of them took it a little bit to extremes with Cadbury's cream eggs, but we've moved on since then. And obviously <laughs> that's uh, re reflected in their, their winning success now. Could, could you also... I'm sorry, did Nicola want to comment on that? No, I'm not a nutritionist, uh, but uh, I was competing in, in wrestling and judo, so my problem was to keep the weight down. <laughs> and uh, and even at the Olympics, we had problems uh, because these guys were extremely dehydrated, for example, because they had to make the weight. Uh, it's the same problem that they have in uh, lightweight rowing mm -hmm. because you have to keep your energy levels high to be able to perform at a little level, but your weight down. And you go to the extreme of not drinking, not eating, um, going to saunas. There have been people who have, known, who have been known to uh, give... Yeah, the sweatsuits is the least. That in in wrestling in the states there have been athletes who have known to who have been known to donate blood the day before the the competition in order to to get that last few hundred grams <laughs> going. So it's it's an extreme example. However, now looking at it from another viewpoint, uh, we have evolved as a, as a species as human Homo sapiens uh, without protein supplements and without <coughs> any of this. So I don't see why we would need them. And, they, and when you look at the science behind the supplements, it is really very, very dodgy at times. Really very dodgy. I do want to add just one thing, just one word of warning for those people that do buy supplements on the internet. Just do not take Jack 3D. Is that okay? Don't take it. There have been two or three deaths recently on people taking this substance. You can buy it on the internet, but please abstain from Jack 3D. Gentleman in the blue shirt with two fingers up. 
Um, my questions are directed to Professor Mafudi. Um, my name is Yusuf, I'm a medical student. Uh, there'll be two questions. Uh, the first one is um, on PRP, you mentioned uh, it's mainly a gray area because of a lack of control studies. And you mentioned one of the main factors for that is uh, it's quite expensive and inconvenient. But if you're charging $7,000 an injection, why haven't the clinicians invested if they're so convinced? Why, sorry? Why haven't the clini clinicians invested in such trials if, if there's such uh, a large influx in terms of financial profit from it? And the second question is, uh, you mentioned that you, towards your, your last comment that we evolved without protein supplements, but can we apply this theory to the, uh, the load as uh, Dr. Sanjay was talking about for the elite athletes today? Well, the PFP, uh, PFP is very cheap to make actually. It's very expensive to sell. Um, sorry, very expensive, expensive to buy. Um, if you think about it, the original PFP manufacturers are able to, you have to invest essentially in a centrifuge and in a few, of, in, in a few tubes. So once you spend about 2,000 pounds to get the top centrifuge and you can prepare everything at home, the actual cost of a single dose is about five pounds probably. Um, so uh, the aura that doctors give is, uh, is probably unjustified. Um, if you have something that uh, pays you $7,000 per shot, would you want an investigation that tells you that it doesn't work? If you're, if you're a clinician that cares and, about and what, what ha Sorry, what happens is that the investigations have been carried out by people who, like me, um, don't use PRP on a routine basis, are prepared to use it if uh, um, there is enough evidence and have managed to find a way of raising funds uh, to undertake an, a, a, a total independent study. And the reality of this is that studies are there and the independent studies, the guy the studies performed by the guys who have no conflict of interest are more or less uniformly, uh, uniformly bad for PRP, more or less. Um, regarding the nutrition, I, as I said, I'm not a nutritionist, but um, the, uh, if you look at metabolic studies, uh, you will find that uh, once you eat probably one and a half to two grams per kilo per year of proteins, that's probably enough. Now, if you, uh, uh, again, one of, my, one of my research assistants is a power athlete, and they eat up to seven grams per day of, of proteins. And as Professor Sharma was saying, there is um, not just a theoretical, an actual possibility of damaging your kidneys for that. Uh, so it's not necessarily good. And don't buy Jack 3D. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, there's a gentleman at the back who hasn't been in towards the middle of the road. Yes, sorry, it was the gentleman in the black shirt in front of him. But if we do that gentleman and then the gentleman's just got his hand up in front. Uh, do you think Paralympic athletes should be able to compete with able-bodied athletes in any sport? Or is there any evidence that this will provide them with an unfair advantage over other athletes? I think yeah, none of us is probably qualified enough to say that. But <laughs> I think there's, 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 there's many strands to that argument, yeah. and I think the, the biggest one that's being hotly debated was Oscar Pretorius with his prosthesis. Um, and there is the potential that these prosthetics could be designed to such a degree because you can put what's in essence a spring in the, in the design of them that would give him more propulsion 
than an able-bodied athlete. And, and I think that's where it's a hypothetical question because the engineering science isn't there yet. And we're, we're you know, it's a bit like how do you, you know, there's already issues. I was talking to one of my postdocs who's been working um, with some of the water skiers, uh, disabled water skiers, and it's like how do you make sure that people are not overplaying or downplaying their disability. So within your classification, there's already a lot of controversy within disabled sport, are people being classified correctly? Um, and I think it's one of those things we may never have the full answer to. Um, so I think we're just gonna have to try and work it out as we go along. And I suspect we won't ever be in the, the, the forum where they can compete on a fair advantage. But of course it does depend on the disability Sarah Story nearly made the Olympic team. Uh, so it, it really does depend on what, what sort of disability you're talking about, how well they can do. And if you could pass the microphone forwards, the gentleman. Hi, I'm a, uh, an ageing amateur endurance athlete, getting on a bit now. Am I gonna hit any issues with my heart in 30 years time? Is there any evidence to suggest that I have problems ahead? if I stop or if I continue? Well, the good news is that we know that um, exercise certainly um, reduces acquired risk factors for coronary artery disease. And uh, we also know from Finnish studies uh, that people who exercise regularly, and I don't mean do phenomenal amounts of exercise, I'm talking about uh, just 30 minutes of exercise four or five times a week, live about seven years longer than those that don't exercise at all. In terms of um, whether you will go on to develop coronary artery disease, that really depends on the risk factors that you've got. So if you are exercising as you are, but if you smoke, for example, or have a, have a high cholesterol, or are diabetic, or are, all have high blood pressure, and none of these are controlled, then there is very little evidence at the moment that exercise actually protects from progression of coronary artery disease. There are studies, if we look at coronary calcium scores, which, are the early, which is the earliest method of actually identifying uh, blockages or furring up in the arteries that have shown that marathoners, these are people that have run 50 to 100 marathons, uh, have high calcium scores. But if you actually then break down the ones that do have high calcium scores, many of them have been former smokers. So as it stands at the moment, if you carry on exercising, you will certainly live longer than people who don't exercise. You're less likely to get dementia. You're less likely to get carcinoma of the prostate. You'll probably deal with stress better I can't comment on what your joints will look like uh, when you're about 60, but in terms of your heart, I think uh, you're better off exercising than not doing anything at all. I could go on and talk about the potential risks of people, is too much of a good thing bad for you, i.e., uh, are those people that run, say, 10, 20 marathons a year going to run into trouble? Was the heart actually designed uh, to do this sort of sport? Uh, and the question, to th the answer to that is really we don't know. There are some data to suggest that marathoners, only a small, a small amount of data, have more scarring in their hearts than non-marathoners, but we must be careful before we interpret these to, 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 the white, to the white nation because we're only looking at the tip of the iceberg. We're only reporting people that have presented to physicians. But if we think about the fact that almost a million people run at least one marathon a year in Europe, we're not seeing people dropping dead left, right, and center at the moment. So not enough evidence yet for long-term disability. There's someone right at the back who I've been ignoring. That's okay. Uh, Professor Mafuli, I, um, I had the privilege of being treated by you about three or four years ago at Mile End. So um, 
See you again. And I'm still walking, so that's okay. Um, it was painful. Um, I, actually, my question was uh, going to touch upon the Paralympic issue. I didn't know if you'd cover that when you were covering the Olympics, obviously the follow-through with the clinician armotherapist as well as a sports coach. But um, I, I work with, para, uh, not Paralympians, but I'm working at the standard below that. So athletes, some of whom have had spinal injuries, some of whom have amputations, um, where the functionality has changed. I just, uh, I'm interested in, in what's being collated at the moment regarding the, para, the, out, out, the positive outpouring that's come from the para, Paralympics, in that the athletes are now, who wouldn't have been seen in the public eye before, now have been, um, their achievements are so immense physically, how that's gonna filter down through the rest of the population. So in terms of rehabilitation, for instance, where you've had specialist well, units, are there, is there a similar structure, do you think, that will evolve now we want to get grassroots sport working through and therefore the sort of intermediate range? Well, I, that think, I think that Paralympians are a great, a great example of what we can do. Um, and no doubt the resilience that uh, these guys have manifested and the, the great achievements that, have, that uh, they have had uh, will filter down. It's already filtering down. It gives you a, a great sense of achievement to, to see them. And, uh, they will, uh, they will inspire a generation. I have no doubts about it. Um, I cannot comment about personality issues because I just, you know, I'm mad on my own, so it's, uh, <laughs> I'll be biased if I commented that way. I just wondered, is, is, uh, as the unit at the Mile End that I went to was superb because it accessed, uh, had access for, s for athletes as well as people like myself who work in the uh, work and actually are sort of ex-athletes, mm. where there is a facility that will obviously be there for people who actually are sports people, but obviously challenged by their physical enablements, you know, how, how they're gonna get through. Will there be that sort of facility extended to them as well? What, what I can tell you is that my, my senior lecturer, Dylan Morrissey, is, has worked with GP, GP Paralympics, so uh, we can cater for them as well, if need Great. be. Okay, I'll, uh, okay, I'll be in contact then if that's all right. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's the gentleman down at the front who asked about Rice earlier. <coughs> question for Sanjay. Uh, you mentioned in sudden cardiac death that it was more common in males to females by nine to one. That's quite a differential. Have you got any further information on that? It's a good point, and um, we can't just attribute this to participation rates. Uh, I know that uh, even now there there are more high-level male athletes than there are females, but this alone cannot account for this huge um, um, sex difference. Um, there are theories. We know that uh, people who develop conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for example, which is the commonest cause of sudden death, males usually have worse manifestation of the disease than females. Um, and, and even if we look at things like um, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, what we don't know is why it's worse in males than females and whether uh, additional testosterone has something to do with it or the fact that males, because of their lean body mass, and I'm not trying to be sexist, are able to push harder pound for pound than females, whether some of that comes into it, I'm not <coughs> sure. Shirt. 
Hi, I'm Alex Hooper. I'm an osteopathic undergraduate. Um, just a quick question to the panel, really, as regards to uh, tendinopathy. You mentioned before about once a tendon becomes symptomatic, it's almost past the point um, that intervention is really recommended. And I just wondered, is there any type of uh, screening process in place or any plans for screening process to uh, identify uh, possible red flags for those who could be suffering from a tendinopathy in the future? Um, that is, most of the uh, most of the Premiership clubs in the in the Premiership um, undertake some form of screening, uh, and they scan, for example, the patellar tendons and the Achilles tendons. What is known is that uh, um, some players do exhibit changes which are totally asymptomatic. There are two studies, both coming from Scandinavia, where uh, in exactly that kind of people. Um, they've tried to uh, implement eccentric training programs to prevent tendinopathies. And what has been shown is that if you try and prevent by eccentric exercises, you actually risk making them symptomatic. <coughs> uh, so in practice, the message has been that um, there is a change which may or may not become symptomatic, <coughs> but if there is a change, don't tickle it with eccentric exercises. Um, there is also one other thing. One club in the Premiership last year um, wanted all its players <coughs> to undertake genetic screening uh, to identify genes which were um, involved in uh, performance on the one hand, but also in predisposition to injury. Um, and that screening has been undertaken, but we don't know what has happened to it. So it is not inconceivable that in the near future, genetic screening will come into play, but how it will influence, um, for example, the market, the, the biomarker, we don't know. Thank you. Um, <coughs> gentleman in the blue towards the centre, just ask. Hello, um, my name is Trevor. A question for Sanjay and Alison. Sanjay, what would you recommend if we were unfortunate enough to come into a situation with an athlete who had a sudden collapse? What would be our first, what would you recommend to do? Well, I mean, the first thing is to establish that this, this is a cardiac arrest, unlike the Mark Vivian Foe, where the magic sponge came out for about 15 minutes and no one actually felt the pulse. Uh, so once you've established that someone's in cardiac arrest, I think we're, we're as we would be if you were in the local community, you start basic life support and shout for help and get someone to ring 999 because the speed at which that heart is defibrillated will govern uh, survival rates. We know that people who don't get defibrillated within five minutes of uh, developing ventricular fibrillation uh, have a, a sub only 11% survive to discharge from hospital versus those that are defibrillated within two minutes where 64% survive to discharge. So the important thing is good CPR, very good CPR and early defibrillation. We saw with Fabrice Mwemba um, that uh, this, this chap had, I think he ended up having about 82 shocks in the end. But I think that the thing that <coughs> ensured that his brain uh, continued to receive oxygen was excellent CPR by the doctors and the paramedics at the pitch, pitch side that didn't really get much of a mention in his success story. And um, Alison, um, you, you alluded to exercises and the myth of kind of core stability with the transverse abdominis. What kind of exercises would you be using for maybe mechanical lower back pain? We did a lot more, and some of them were basic floor aerobics, traditional exercises in actual fact. We worked with, um, for those of you who are older, remember the 80s, um, 
we worked with Lizzie Webb, who was one of the icons of the 80s on the TV, and, and she put together a, an exercise program that you could do anywhere with ankle weights. And it really was just a resistance training program for the whole abdominal complex, the oblique muscles, the gluteal muscles, and particularly gluteal muscles, because actually people forget, everyone goes on to wanting, uh, they, you know, strong bottom muscles are actually really important. When I trained as a physiotherapist years, we were reminded that they were the biggest muscle in the body, but also the most powerful ones, so when you were lifting patients, use them. And I think there's a lot of people don't use those muscles enough and, and don't strengthen them, and they become very weak. And it's a very typical pattern in chronic back pain that they have no bum muscles. Um, and we were talking earlier, when I first tried to do some of these changes, it was particularly interesting with the lightweight athletes who kept reminding me that the, these were the men, that they had to be less than 72 kilos, and really they couldn't afford the extra poundage of having a bottom muscle as well, Alison. So it just wasn't on the cars to do these exercises. But you know, if you, if you try and understand the body, how the body works and how the segments are related, you know, one of the, the key muscles for keeping the pelvis strong are actually the bum muscles. And people who often have tight hamstrings or recurrent hamstring problems, it could often quite actually just mm -hmm. be poor use of your gluteal and your abdominal muscles to stabilize your pelvis. Thank you. Um, gentleman over there, and then I think the gentleman in the middle. Hi, it's just a, an open question to the, the whole panel. Um, there's a recent publication in the, the House of Lords um, on extending the legacy of the Olympics um, because as, as a lot of us will know, there was a large amount of investment into sports and exercise medicine leading up to the Olympics. But it's about getting consultant posts for the registrars that have gone through and maintaining the funding for all of the uh, trained doctors and allied health professionals. Um, one of the recommendations is to attach a quaff to prescribing exercise, and uh, historically attaching quaffs generally makes things happen, um, to use colloquial terms in the primary sector. Um, what are your opinions on the future of sports and exercise medicine as, as a specialty, and on attaching a quaff to prescribing exercise in primary care? Can someone just say what a quaff is? Okay, I'll... Uh, I wear my hat as uh, um, the uh, chair of the East of London Training Committee for SEM. Uh, it's a great idea. As it stands, however, we are struggling to find good specialist trainees in sports and exercise medicine. Um, the last, uh, uh, we've been assigned two academic, cl academic clinical fellows and we have not been able to recruit and uh, in the last round of, um, of straightforward specialist trainees in SEM, uh, we, didn't have it, we did not shortlist anybody because nobody was good enough caliber. Um, the reality is that despite what the government wants um, and what the government says, there's probably not just not enough money on the cards and trusts are not, uh, are not putting together job descriptions and consultant jobs that will allow somebody to progress. Most of the guys who graduate <coughs> from the program at present have a portfolio of jobs which go from uh, uh, classical sports medicine jobs, you know, being attached to teams and so on, to exercise physicians in, uh, in, uh, in the NHS. Uh, but they have more than one job. Well, this quaff thing, this quality outcomes framework, for those of you, yeah. this, is just, this is an incentive for primary care physicians that if the more 
people they uh, tell to exercise, the more tick boxes they get, and then they, their their uh, practice gets more money, which is great. I mean, that's an incentive to get people to do things. But I do think that uh, as uh, as the ambassador of my patients, it's I, I must uh, promote exercise. It's it's the one thing that we can give you. Well, it's the one thing that you can do that's better than anything else we'll ever give you in cardiology. It's better than any aspirin, any statin, or any ACE inhibitor that you will take. It's free. It doesn't cause side effects, and you can do it any time you want. So uh, I think we should all be promoting exercise. I think the only thing I have to really add is that we are facing certain epidemics in the future with our aging population. One of them is osteoarthritis, and the biggest predictor of osteoarthritis is an a musculoskeletal injury to that joint, and then you're more likely to get osteoarthritis. So actually, we do need good sports doctors out there because they're the people who are going to treat and hopefully prevent those injuries in the future. And I think the biggest failing we have is we've started training these people, they're qualifying, and there are no consultancy jobs for them. There is not that structure yet in the NHS for those people to work. And basically, we're spending a lot of money training people to go and work for private sports clubs. Uh, so we haven't quite got the metric right, and I don't think that's necessarily clear, maybe perhaps to the House of Lords. Perhaps I should speak to somebody in my department. Yeah. <laughs> um, so gentlemen, if you could raise your hand so someone can see where you are. Thank you. And I think we'll take one more question. I saw a hand cautiously. Yes, it was you over there. Yeah. Hi there, my name is Bruce. Uh, I'm a medical student. Um, I was just wondering, um, what has been your experience of, say, uh, the concordance of patients that are elite athletes give um, when they've had a negative diagnosis that's maybe forced them to give up the sport or maybe play at a lower level considering how driven these guys are to you know be at the top of their profession to to make you know everything of themselves I suppose in what they perceive as their lives well I guess the, the one time that it becomes very important is if we diagnose a cardiac problem because um, uh, although, if I, again, I should start by saying event rates in athletes with cardiac problems are low. So even if you've got a cardiac problem, the ch uh, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or the long QT syndrome as a young athlete, uh, the event rate is between 2 and 3% per annum, but not much more than that. But th the issue really is the potential life years lost, one, and the unpredictability of the situation. You could play two seasons in the Premier League and nothing happened to you and you drop dead in the third season. And I think because there is so much at stake, what I do uh, as the ambassador of the athlete is to tell the athlete uh, the facts, the potential risks, uh, and hope the athlete will make the correct decision. If the athlete continues to exercise, uh, I would support, I would basically obviously monitor that athlete. But the problem with people like me is that I'm not just accountable to the athlete. And that's the thing that I find very uncomfortable in terms of confidentiality. Many times I'm accountable to Chelsea or Tottenham or West Ham United, and you've got to tell them because they send you the athlete. You've got to tell them, and they call the shots afterwards. From, from an orthopedic and Maskovskita's viewpoint, obviously it is a bit different. They, they don't drop dead, but um, their career may be finished. And at this point, I mean, you have to rely on, uh, on the structure that there is around the athlete and also on the athlete himself or herself. Um, if somebody has an alternative career, it's great, uh, but if somebody has only done one thing, it's a huge problem. 
the, I was involved in the Toya study. I was the, the lecturer in charge of the training of young athletes study in the 80s. And we studied 453 children who um, were supposed to be elite. They were elite at the time of entering the study. And out of 453, only one went to the Olympics and two became, um, became premiership footballers. And one was Tim Hemman. Uh, so, uh, you know, despite the fact that these guys were considered to be elite, uh, what we did find in that particular study, and therefore I can talk about children, um, is that uh, many of them uh, were able to adapt uh, their participation in sport when their time was over. Um, so they became coaches, they changed sport, for example, uh, or they just started becoming recreational athletes in another sport because they just enjoyed it. This is not necessarily possible if you are an Olympian, okay? If you've been an Olympian, you won a gold medal in whatever, in cycling, um, you, you may not want to go and become a, a, you know, a marathon runner because you know, it is different and probably you will not make it. Thank you. Sorry, the microphone is not on, I think. So I don't know who, I don't know if they could hear you probably. Perhaps we could pass the other one over as a stopgap. That one does seem to be a bit quiet. <coughs> yes, I know that oh. much. Ah, ah, great. Okay. okay, so just to summarize the question, in essence, leading from my colleague's question on the future of sports medicine, how would you advise the younger students coming up, aspiring to be involved in sports medicine, seeing as there is um, not a very tangible um, structure available within the NHS? And like Professor McGregor mentioned, um, some people will go into private, but that's scarce, and um, it, it won't possibly be able to cater to all the people that want to get involved in sports medicine. So how, how would you advise those students that are coming up to um, gear their career towards sports medicine? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think it's, it's the advice. There's a, you have to create opportunities, and if you want to make something happen, you will make it happen. When I studied for a PhD, I was told by my supervisor, I don't know what you're doing this for, because you're just going to go back and be a clinical physio. Uh, and I was made a professor at Imperial three years ago. So it, it's, it's also personality-driven. You know, sometimes in life you have to carve the niche that you want to be in and, f and make the career happen. And if that's something you believe passionately, you have to go and talk to the people who've done it and find out how they do it and take the most of opportunities and make things happen. And, you know, actually, it's a lot easier for a career in that field now than it was 10 years ago. So I hear what you're saying and I know it's not right, but it's improving and all change takes time. But be part of that change and make it happen. Thank you. Well, you know, remember that sports medicine in this country is not sports medicine, it's sports and exercise medicine. And where the big difference will be made is not by just having more people looking after uh, you know, elite athletes, is having more people who 
uh, are able to prescribe exercise to eventually uh, make, or, uh, make, make most of us live seven years longer. And that is the real difference. Now, uh, the uh, AQMUL, you know, I have now two senior lecturers, well, no, sorry, one. Because the one senior lecture I had until a short while ago uh, has gone over to work for Chelsea, so he's gone. Uh, but uh, two of them uh, were involved in exercise medicine. They've been appointed, I appointed them, not for the sports side, for the exercise side. Because I think that the future is not just looking after uh, elite athletes. There are probably enough of them around. Okay, enough guys around. The future is the exercise science. And the way in which we can convince the NHS to create jobs is <laughs> for on the exercise side is not on the elite 1% of the population who are to some extent already well catered for, to some extent. Thank you. Right, well, I think that's time now. Um, so I'd like to thank our three speakers, Professor Sanjay Sharma, Professor Alison McGregor, and Professor Nic Nicola Mafuli. I'd like to thank all of you for coming tonight. Um, just to say that we have been recording this event, and we should be able to get that up online on our website in the next couple of weeks. I'll probably send out a, a Facebook post or an email or something saying it, so do look out for that. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors. They haven't shown up very much um, around the place, but they, they are out there. A company called Ansel Healthcare, who've actually generously provided some of the funding that's enabled us to make this event free tonight. And I'd just like to remind everyone that Anatomy of the Athlete, the exhibition that's expired, that inspired this event, is um, open now until the, not open now, sorry, it's closed this evening, but will be open um, until the 21st of December, so you can come back and see it. I know that some of you have picked up our exercise sheets. There are some outside on that little table if you didn't get one. Uh, as it says, please do not um, start doing crazy exercise um, unless you've consulted, possibly consulted a GP first, and always do a few bends and stretches just to get yourself warmed up. Um, so um, thank you very much for tonight's event. Goodbye. <laughs>